Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We've seen the federal government step up with some significant fiscal stimulus. A lot of that is geared towards small business loans and actually getting money uh, to these small businesses that need it uh, the most. And a key part of that is the banks that will actually get the capital into the local marketplace. To get a sense of how that's all playing out, we welcome Frank Sorrentino. Frank is a chief executive officer of Connect One Bank. Uh, that's based based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. So uh, we're really early days in terms of getting some of this fiscal stimulus money into the marketplace. We understand there's been a kind of a bumpy start to it all from in terms of the banks and getting coordinated with the government. What's been your experience? So good morning and thank you. Um, yeah, you know, bumpy start. I, 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 I guess that may be partially true, but, um, you know, think about the scale and size of this program. Think about how it compares to any other program that, you know, would go through like the Defense Department to go do something huge like this. Uh, I think they're doing pretty good, actually. I think the SBA has done a fantastic job. I think the banks are doing a fantastic job. And I believe that here we are two weeks from or two weeks and a couple of days from the signing of the president's bill and money is already flowing out into the into the small business hands. So, yes, there's a backlog of, of applications. Banks are working as quickly as they can, but money is flowing into small business hands. And Frank, it's, the money is flowing from your bank as well. And can you just give us a sense of the demand for these loans from small businesses that you've seen and, and, and how many have been saved and able to maintain their staffs as a result of the loans? Well, we have business, small business owners that when we notified them that they were approved, they just, they almost break down in that, you know, with, with joy that they are now able to keep their employees on staff, be able to pay them. Uh, as we're dispersing funds, I can't tell you how many text messages and emails we're receiving from clients from all over telling us how this is saving their livelihood for their business and in turn how good they feel about saving their employees' livelihood and their ability to put food on their table and pay their rent and do what they need to do. So I think this program is critical at this moment in time. So Frank, do you, from your perspective, just in your local markets, do you think it will be enough or do you suspect, given the demand that you're seeing, that Congress uh, should and perhaps may be likely to come back with, with some more? Yeah, I believe Congress will come back for more. I think there will be demand for more than the $350 billion. Uh, I do believe that it is doing the job that it needs to do, and it is helping to float the economy through the next, you know, for the last couple of weeks and through the next few weeks. I think if we think this is going to go on beyond May, then, yeah, I think they're going to need a lot more. But for right now, I think between this, this current draft of $350 billion plus what they're contemplating in the new uh, bill of $250 billion should be sufficient. So that's on the small business side. You have a long history in the mortgage market, in the housing market, in the building market, and there is a growing concern that that particular market is suffering disproportionately without necessarily a clear backstop from the government, particularly for uh, mortgages that are not backed by Fannie and Freddie Mae. What are you seeing on that front? How concerned are you there? 
going to be a concern as we move through the next phase of this, right? Right now, we're everyone's focused on stabilizing where we are today. But if you can think out, you know, 60 days, 90 days, or even a year from now, and people start applying for mortgages, and there was this huge business disruption, um, and but by the way, I think that, you know, construction's come to a halt, which is also an issue. But the, but the disruption that's gone on in people's financial lives is going to have to be reconciled at some point, and it probably will have some negative effect on the market. So for, that's kind of where I want to go. Based upon your discussion with your customers and your clients, are you getting a sense that, boy, this is really going to have some long-lasting implications for you know, business cycles and maybe even consumer psyche in terms of demand? Well, I think the Fed is very concerned about deflation in the marketplace. And so I think that's, and that should tell you everything you need to know, right? That tells you that the consumer is probably going to move to less consumption and more savings. And so what's that saying? It's saying that they're changing their psyche about how they think about the world. I think what we're doing today, I think the programs that the Federal Reserve is pushing forward today, the programs that the administration is pushing forward, the programs that Congress is thinking about, is all to help to keep that psyche, you know, where it's been and, you know, keep the United States the great country that it's always been in that, you know, we are a country that likes to spend. We are a country that innovates. We are a country that takes risks. And so by freeing up this capital so that people don't have to worry about that, we will minimize that disruption in the future. So, Frank, uh, we're hearing from J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo today. We're going to hear from Citigroup and some of the other banks uh, throughout the rest of the week. And we're really focusing on loan loss provisions. What are you seeing with respect to that at your bank? So I think what you've seen from those larger institutions is that no one really knows. And so they've taken some, certainly they've taken some general approaches to what they have modeled that they think things could be, but nobody really knows for sure. It is way too early in the game to make decisions about, you know, what, what, what losses may occur, who's going to be impacted, what segments are going to be hurt the most. It really depends a lot on how successful some of these programs are how we all work together to get through this next phase to reopen the economy, how long that looks like. I think without answering those questions, I think it's difficult to really assess what, what damage, if there's damage, how much damage, and what it's going to look like on a bank's uh, financial statement. Frank Sorrentino, thank you so much for being with us and all my best to you through this period as you uh, work to manage and, and get loans out to all of those small businesses in the path forward. Frank Sorrentino is Chief Executive Officer of Connect One Bank, joining us from Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Well, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Wells Fargo kicked off earnings season for the big banks today. And I think what investors were really focusing on was those loan loss provisions Combined, those two banks set aside more than $12 billion to cover defaults across the economy. So just extraordinary numbers coming out of there. To get a sense of kind of what we're going to see from the banking sector coming up, we welcome Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors based in New York. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, those loan loss provisions were just extraordinary. What's your takeaway? Well, I was actually too conservative in my model for the industry. I said, fine, we'll double provisions this month. And then double them, or this quarter, and then double them again. Second quarter, that gets up to 2008 levels. Uh, but I think J.P. Morgan decided to go big. 
I agree with what they've done. It takes a little pressure off them in the next couple quarters because they've put a fair amount of money out there. But they've also said that they expect loss rates to be extraordinary. And, and that says to me well above 2008 levels. So we're starting to use the 1930s as our model simply because of the dislocation both in terms of unemployment and uh, small and mid-sized enterprises, which looks to be a, a horror show. I, I think we could see a large chunk of the service sector essentially disappear simply because they don't have a lot of capital. And if you impose losses on them, you take them out of the, uh, you know, circulation in terms of revenue, they die. And, and small businesses turn over quite a lot anyway. But when you put this kind of stress situation on them, the only sector of this economy that's liquid right now are basically those that are supported directly by the government, particularly the mortgage sector. But everything else is an orphan. Um, and I, I think that's going to have a real serious repercussion on GDP and on how long it takes us to get through. I, you know, that, I think a couple of observers, in fact, have suggested we may not see normal earnings, normal kind of trend earnings for a couple of years. Uh, and I think that's what the banks are telling us. What about when it comes to the the health of the banks themselves? Because a lot of regulators and analysts have said that the banks are incredibly well capitalized. And the fact that they can put aside such a big amount for loan losses that they're expecting shows their fortitude and their mm. fortress-like balance sheets. Would you agree with that characterization? Oh, very much. And I, I think, you know, the political dialogue on this is immediately focused on the banks and the fact that they pay dividends. Um, we've already gotten most banks to or stop share repurchases, which is a, worth $110 billion a year in terms of capital retention for the top 20 banks. That's enough. That funds your reserve build, by the way, Paul. So I think that what I would tell policymakers is leave the dividends alone. You're going to deal with this on a bank-by-bank basis, but you don't want to cut off that cash flow to investors because there are a lot of people who depend on dividends from public companies to pay their bills. And I think it's important for us to realize that the banks are well capitalized and they have $150 billion in cash flow every quarter, earnings, share repurchases, dividends that they can draw on to meet this wave of default. And so I think that's the good news. I would agree with you, Lisa. So, Chris, let's take a look at some, maybe some of the, the regional banks. Are they in a similar position in terms of relative health of their balance sheets? Well, they deal with a smaller community typically, so they will have more idiosyncratic uh, risk elements in their portfolio. They're not as diversified. But diversification is not going to help us this time. I think the country generally is going to see – both heavy consumer default activity, and we're also going to see a lot of business defaults. So the good news is, unlike 2008, this didn't start on Wall Street. It didn't start with subprime mortgages that nobody wanted anymore, trillions of them, remember. Uh, This time around, it's an external shock, which has taken GDP down significantly and is pushing unemployment up to ridiculous levels. I mean, you know, in credit models, unemployment's your biggest factor. That's what you start with. And over the weekend, my wife kept looking at me and go, why are you in such a bad mood? <laughs> yeah. It was because I was writing my earnings note for the banks. And basically, by the second quarter, I think two-thirds of bank earnings are going to be gone because of provisioning and other expenses, operating expenses. And then over time, they're going to come out of the hole. So to me, I'm still very positive on the banks. I own banks. 
you know, JP's at 1.2 times book value this morning. So it's yeah. not like they're cheap, cheap. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the whole industry is going to have to divert income. They're not going to consume capital. That's always the misnomer in these discussions, right? They're going to use the income that they generate to plow through the losses, and they'll be okay. Yeah. When you talk about job losses, I'm just struck yeah. by the fact that nearly one in 10 Americans lost their jobs in, in the past three weeks. And, and probably we're going to get another multi-million print in the jobless claims report that we're getting out on Thursday. In the meantime, there's a question about consolidation. Does the likes of JP Morgan end up more powerful at the end of this because they do have the capacity to withstand this and that fortress-like balance sheet? What do you think? Well, JP is not going to get any bigger, but they do have a lot of monopoly power. Um, they are also reacting to the madness we see in Washington at the uh, the Federal Housing Finance Administration, the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, basically came out and said that they wouldn't support the non-bank servicers, who are the most important part of the mortgage market. Um, so JP changed their warehouse guidelines last week. They basically cut off all the non-banks in terms of funding for new loans and also for servicing advances. And it's really bad. We, yeah. we need to get the government on track here because we don't need them saying bad things in public. And we don't need to have a regulator out yeah. attacking the institutions he's responsible for regulating and, and preserving. So yeah. I, I think we need to get everybody on the same page. The Fed's great. The other regulators, uh, Ginny May and the FHA, are awesome. They've been yeah. moving heaven and earth. Um, Chris, but I worry that the default wave we're going to see, Lisa, is going to be really big. Chris Whalen, thank you so much for being with us, Chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. This period of time so unprecedented and jarring in its magnitude and depth has led to a lot of philosophical musings and a lot of historical references. Uh, one that really caught my attention, uh, Paul, was about the Hobbesian state of man and the, <laughs> and, and, and the West versus the East and sort of jostle for power that we see going on and perhaps transforming at this moment as the world fights the pandemic. And I'm so glad to join us right now. I'm pleased to say, John, Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, who wrote this column, The Virus Should Wake Up the West. And John, I want to frame this from the view of an argument that people are making that China's success in fighting off the spread of the coronavirus shows that autocracies are preferable to democracies. How much of that has been borne out by what we've seen in the past few weeks and months? Well, I would argue... Um, well, highly say, Paul, um, I would argue very little because I think that if you look at it, yes, I mean, China has done quite well and we should immediately put an enormous caveat against both its numbers, which people raise considerable suspicions about, and also its role in the very um, starting point of the virus, where if it had, had less of a police state in Wuhan, more people would have known about the virus much earlier. So China's definitely culpable in that. But in terms of the sort of secondary stage of reacting to it, yes, China does look better than, say, the United States. But um, the truth is there are good-performing good autocracies and bad-performing autocracies, good-performing democracies and bad-performing democracies. If you compare China to Germany, if you compare it to Switzerland, if you compare it... Um, to places like Norway, if you compare it to South Korea, if you compare it to Taiwan, if you compare it to Singapore, China does not look great. So in other words, yeah, the democracies are, still do it better 
Um, and people who jump towards the idea that this has been particularly great for China, I would rather see it as a warning, especially to America, but you know, also to that matter to Britain, where I am at the moment, that you know, really, if the West does not get its government into shape, um, you know, it will lose the lead that it has held over Asia for the past 400 years. So, John, just looking at the U.S. here, what's you know kind of brewing here is a battle between the you know the federal government and the states, and we're seeing regional formations of coalitions, whether it's New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, or even out on the West Coast with California and Washington. How do you think that's going to play out? Because it seems like that's the next big bone of contention as countries think about, including the U.S., about reopening the economy. So I think that's a reasonable thing. I think you can make the argument. I think most outsiders looking at the federal reaction to this would say it has been useless. Um, you know, it's, there are some places which have been worse. I think maybe Italy, depending how you measure it. But in general, you know, this has not been um, Donald Trump's finest hour. Um, by contrast, actually, I think you can give Gavin Newsom in California some some good points. Um, you know, he, he, they did. California did react much quicker. It's thought about what to do. There are still problems there, self-evidently, but it's, you know, the numbers there speak for themselves to some extent. And he's had to do it against the background of the federal government not being very helpful. So in the ter- terms of efficacy, I think you could argue that the governors have got some right to do this. The great tragedy, of course, is that one thinks about what other presidents might have done, is what should have happened here is that first the president should have rallied the entire country. The beauty of the federal system is, yes, you can use states to experiment, but it should also be a kind of federal, it should be a federally coordinated response. What's happened instead is that Trump has used press conferences and things to attack governors, and they have also used them to attack him. And meanwhile, it's not just in terms of what's happening inside America. The other huge tragedy for the West is that you would have hoped that America would be leading what might be described as the Western pandemic response. And that hasn't happened at all. Um, in the, even, even when it came down to warning the Europeans that um, they were about to impose no-fly zones, and not, not fly zones, but close fly bans on European countries. You know, America did not tell its closest allies about that. And so there is such distrust at the moment. It's not working in the traditional coordinating role of the presidency in, in crises is not working. And this is this is one of the ramifications of it. And it's, it's very sad. John, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It was an interesting column uh, that uh, you wrote. Uh, John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief, Bloomberg News, uh, joining us uh, from Britain, giving us uh, his thoughts. Well, when we talk about the incredible stimulus, we've got to talk about credit and the rally that we have seen that's been a complete snapback of a lot of the losses that we saw earlier, just to give you a sense of how big the snapback was. The extra yield that investors earned uh, earn to possess junk bonds has compressed from 11% to 7.5 percentage points over rates in just a couple of weeks here. There's a question, has this gone too far? And the person to answer it is Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, with more than $200 billion firm-wide, joining us from Los Angeles. Tad, I'm so glad that you're the person we're speaking to right now. We've heard the Federal Reserve is going to start buying credit, but have traders gotten ahead of themselves in terms of how broad and how deep and how far into uh, below investment grade credit the Federal Reserve will go? 
course, that's the $64 trillion question. I mean, I think the, the, the subtext is, are investors, is the consensus expectation out there that we are going to go back to January 2020, that we're going to get a V-bottom, that the uh, health issues are going to be resolved in the relatively near term, and then we just resume, resume the historical trend line, and consequently, the levels that we saw in the credit markets in January 2020, according to that way of thinking, would be reasonably justifiable. I think that's unrealistic. I think that, therefore, there is a lot of mispricing that's going on in the credit markets. And the reason that we believe that way is basically several. One reason is, is that, first of all, a lot of uncertainty remains about when the global economy gets back up on its feet. And in any case, even if it does, it doesn't going to get all up on its feet at the same time. So you have kind of a rolling recession type situation where even if China is in fact getting a little bit better, other parts of the world evidently are sinking, unfortunately, more so. And even if we do uh, solve the public health problem, then we still have the reality that we went through a long and vast leveraging process over the course of the last five plus years, at least, let's say. There were a lot of excesses and the virus, to a greater or lesser degree, isn't so much the cause of the repricing that we've seen in the credit markets as it is also the catalyst for revealing a lot of those excesses. So I think that it's a fair statement to say that the Fed has done its helicopter drops. It's certainly improved the liquidity environment. It's compressed liquidity premium. But can it fix fundamentally broken business models that are being revealed as we speak? No, it can't do that. All right. So, Tad, and you've been consistently, I would say, cautious you know, over the last year or so that we've been chatting on uh, the fixing income markets. What is your sense for defaults going forward? How do you think this is going to play out? And then, of course, that's a, I'm also asking you to, to kind of share with us kind of your economic outlook as well. Well, the, if we begin maybe by looking at the loan market as well as the high-yield market, the, the compression that we spoke to, the, um, uh, the overall compression and spread that we've seen in high yield, I think high yield now is just a, a touch inside of 800 basis points over treasuries, ignores the fact that there's also been tremendous bifurcation uh, within the high yield space and the bank loan space, meaning that there's actually been growth in the size of the cohorts that are, are priced to yield more than 10%, let's say. Um, so as we've seen improvement in the better credits, the ones that are viewed as probably survivors or at least survivors for some period of time through this, let's ignore the fact that we have a significant cohort of names that are going to have to go through some kind of restructuring type of process. I think it's anyone's guess you know, how high defaults are going to get, but they're going to go a whole lot higher. Um, you got the first hint of that in a way, I suppose, from the bank earnings today, from Wells's and JP Morgan's, and the significant uh, increase in loan loss allowance that uh, goes into the earnings numbers. So we're still, I think, at the front end of this. We should remember we've only been shut down for a matter of weeks, maybe a month, um, and I, it's really unclear as I said earlier, what the ultimate impact of shutting down uh, large swaths of the U.S. economy are going to be. Just as a you know, total anecdote, but an important one, I think, is my understanding is, is that 25% of the workforce in Michigan has already applied for unemployment. That guy, I think kind of wow. starts to give you an idea that any type of optimism in terms of pricing at this point may be getting a little bit ahead of itself. 
Well, haven't you checked the stock market? Everything's fine, Ted. Everything's great. We just had the biggest rally since 1974. You know, I, I remember when we talked to you, as, as Paul referenced, you've been bearish for a while. And back in November, you wrote about the liquidity issues that we're going to be facing in the credit markets. And certainly that did come to pass in a massive way. Are you becoming more constructive in terms of what you're buying just based on some of the dislocations? Or do you think that there is another leg lower in the repricing that we're seeing across credit markets? Uh, well, first of all, there has been actually tremendous opportunity in certain parts of the credit markets, and we've taken advantage of that. The first place that we took advantage of it, in fact, the way we have oftentimes articulated the game plan in the late cycle type of environment that we felt we were in is step zero, so to speak, is get prepared and build defensive. And then step one was the foray into those segments of the marketplace that are the most bendable, the, the types of assets that are not really going to be subject to solvency challenge. And so step one was a significant increase in our agency mortgage type of exposure, in part with the expectation that the Fed would probably liquefy that area first. So we added substantially to our positions in agency mortgages. We've actually been selling them down as the prices have improved. The next step, and we ha um, have, have engaged this as well, is the liquefaction of fortress balance sheets. So we've seen Intel come to the market, Exxon, Kimberly Clark, uh, Procter & Gamble, Disney, and the spread levels were 200 to 250 basis points wider than where they had been in January. Okay, so do the math, right? 20, 200 basis points on a 20 duration, a 30-year maturity instrument is 40%. It's 40 points. And we've already realized, actually, we've actually round-tripped through some of those names already. So we are constructive on the fortress balance sheets and credit. We certainly already have almost round-tripped with respect to the agency mortgages. And we expect there's going to be a lot more opportunity. Um, but it will probably be in areas that you have to do a little bit more credit analysis than 90 seconds worth, which we kind of joke about almost, is all you need to do when you're looking at Disney, P&G, and, and Intel. Hey, Tad, thanks so much for joining us. We're so glad we were able to chat with you today to get your thoughts on what has just been an extraordinary time in the markets and uh, you know the experience that you have. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.